is here. I hope that you are doing well. God bless you. I pray blessings upon you and your family and that all is going well with you. And I want to I want to start today and talk a little bit about Martin Luther King. Talk about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So it is the his national holiday, the, his birthday holiday. I'm going to set some things up here and I wanted to kind of to jump in and talk a little bit about <clears throat> Martin Luther King today. And, and I'll, I'll first ask you, you know, to, to share this information. I'm really, really big on it's really important for us to think about the groundwork that has been laid for many of our elders, many of our, our, our historic people that we look at. You know, nobody, nobody moves on an island. Nobody moves by themselves. There's always somebody underneath that person who lifts them up. And a lot of times, sometimes the people underneath the people that we know about are actually greater. They're greater in the, in the standpoint that, that they were doing this with very very little, very little glory, very little respect. They were the ones who were willing to go to go to the mat, so to speak, and lift up the generation that would come after them. And many times we see the product of that. You don't see the seed, you know, you see the flower, you know, you don't see the root, you see the tree. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the roots of Martin Luther King and some of the things he did and why the, the people, the family around him, in particular this man and this man's father, help to help to bring about what we know as Dr. Martin Luther King and to change really the world and the country. So we'll talk about that. I'll ask up front if you would get a chance to take a look in the comment section below. There is my book. I have a new book called The Adventures of Tahari Amen. It's available on anywhere you can get a Kindle app. So if you have a Kindle or the Kindle app on your phone, on your, your iPad, whatever it may be, you can check out my new book. It's about a 21-year-old young man who is trying to find his place in time and to find his family. So I ask that you take a look at it. It's a historical fiction, historical novel, if you will, and I ask you to take a look this right there in the comments below but let's jump into this let's let's talk about Reverend Adam Daniel Williams and and I'll admit I didn't know a whole lot about him until I started reading and, and researching and you know a lot of times when you find the story behind someone the roots behind someone it, it becomes even more fascinating so this is Martin Luther King's maternal grandfather it's, it's his mother's father so it's Martin Luther King's father and he is the reason he's the man that helped start Ebenezer Baptist Church helped grow Ebenezer Baptist Church into what it was and to what it became by the time Martin Luther King was, was even born, even before Martin Luther King was born. He's the man who was responsible for that. And he was born in Georgia. So he was born in Georgia around 1861 or 1863. He claimed a, a January 2nd, 1863 as his birthday because he was born during slavery. And, you know, many people who were born during slavery did not know exactly when they were born, right? So it becomes an important thing. So he claimed January 2nd, 1863, the day after the Emancipation Proclamation as his birthday. That's when he celebrated his birthday. He might have actually been born, however, in, in 1861 during the Civil War. Either way, he would have been born during the Civil War in Georgia. His mother and father were Lucretius and Willis, Lucretia and Willis, and they were enslaved. And so technically he would have been, he was enslaved too when he was born in Georgia um, in during 1861 or 1863, he still would have been enslaved. Um, his mother and father were in slavery and they were, as I mentioned, in Georgia. His father's name was Willis and his father was um was someone who was a preacher. He was a preacher while he was enslaved. So by this time in the, in the 1860s, 1850s, 1840s, you would have had in some places African-Americans being able, being allowed to take up the profession of preaching, even though obviously they would have been enslaved and they would have been preaching in whatever way their enslavers basically told them to on the plantation or various places around there. And apparently this man, Adam, Adam's father, was an incredible preacher. He was a dynamic preacher, and whatever he was doing, whatever he was talking about, apparently the idea of freedom fighting, the idea of fighting for what's right was instilled in Adam even at an early, early age. The idea of being able to serve God was instilled in him at an early age. 
And this Father Willis would have been someone who was going around preaching to people right during slavery, during enslavement, and right after that. And he would have been a young man seeing his father at the end of the Civil War and after the Civil War during Reconstruction talk about, you know, Jesus, talk about Christianity, talk about the Bible, talk about redemption, talk about many things that made him be impressed. And so you can imagine him as a young man looking up to his father and seeing something in his father that he wanted to emulate. His father, who was Willis um, Williams, died in 1874. And so they were, they were enslaved by people with the last name of Williams. And a lot of black people, when they were enslaved at that time, when you left slavery and you were finally out of, out of got freedom, finding out that, that horrible situations, many times they may have kept or just adapted the name of the person who was enslaving him because that's all they knew and that's all you had. And you can also understand that he was living in a time in Georgia. He was born in Georgia, as I said, either 1863 or 1861. And even if he were born in 1863 on January 2nd, it would not have meant that he would have necessarily been free as a child because the Emancipation Proclamation applied to those areas that were in rebellion. And unless those areas were willing to give up their enslaved people, you weren't free, right? Like that's what happened with, with Juneteenth. So you could declare it and you can make it be an impact on places that are in rebellion, but if those places weren't taken over by the Union Army at the time, you were still enslaved. So it, it wouldn't have matter that would have been his condition more than likely he was born and obviously his mother and father Willis and Lucretia would have also been enslaved and they just took on the last name of Williams and so he was there in Georgia you know outside of outside of Atlanta it's kind of far outside in Penfield Green County um, Georgia is where he was born and he was from his father died in 1874 and so when his fathers died they moved away from the plantation where they, they wherever they were living and moved to a different place and he ended up the plantation probably where they were enslaved And he ended up as a child really, really wanting to take on the idea of his dad, really, really holding his dad and his mindset and his imagination and his heart. And he wanted to be a preacher. They said when he was younger, Reverend Adam Daniel Williams, that when he was younger, he would go around. Um, as a kid and preach at the funerals of the lo- of the animals that would die in the area. So if a cat died or somebody's dog died or some, even a snake, things like that, he would preach and the children in the area would bring their animals, their pets to him if the pets died so that he could preach the funeral. And so it was kind of like a thing, but he was, he was practicing in a way that you just don't know that would impact Martin Luther King. You know, I assumed when I was younger, when I was reading about Martin Luther King, I was hearing Martin Luther King that he must've inherited his, his, preaching ability and his oratorical skills from his father who was you know no no his father was a preacher his father ended up taking on the leadership of of Ebenezer Baptist Church which we'll talk about in a little bit but I just assume he got that oratorical ability from his father but when you read more and you read about Adam Daniel Williams you you think he may have gotten it from his mother's side he may have gotten this from his 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 his, his maternal grand his maternal grandfather his mother's father. That may be where he got it from because every account of this man talks about him being as being an incredible orator, a dynamic speaker, someone who was able to stand up in front of a crowd and command a crowd and get people to do things based on his his abilities. And I'll share this this um this article this book here with you right here. Here's a book that's a spread. It was written in 1917 before before Martin Luther King was born. Before Martin, this book was written, and it was written about Adam Daniel Williams. And talked about him. It's like it's called the the Negro, the history of the Negro and his institutions, and it was written by A. B. Caldwell in 1917, obviously before Martin Luther King Jr. was born. And it talks about it says in here that no history of the Negro race in Georgia could be complete without talking about Adam Daniel Williams. 
it, it, and I'm, I was reading, I was like, that kind of struck me. I was like, wow, he must have had an impact. And this is written in 1917, as I mentioned, that they're saying you can't even really talk about the history of black people in Georgia without talking about this man in, in 1917. He was that dynamic in Atlanta. So it, it begins to let you know that some of his, his charismatic ways, some of his ability to connect with people came from more likely his father, whose name was Willis, who was an enslaved um preacher while he was enslaved that would have been Martin Luther King's great-grandfather so Martin Luther King's grandfather and Martin Luther King's great-grandfather were both impacted by enslaved and both enslaved and the dynamics of that preacher just makes me think the dynamics of this man who would have been Willis Williams his his father who would have been preaching during enslavement while he was enslaved not knowing that his great-grandson would grow up to be one of the most dynamic preachers and one of the most important preachers in, a her in history, and certainly in American history, and in the world is an amazing thing. You never know what groundwork you're leaving. Whatever type of seed the people who were enslaving him and his father were trying to, to stamp out, whatever type of, of ignorance they were trying to put in, whatever type of damage they were trying to do, it didn't work because his father and his grandfather ended up producing one of the most dynamic preachers in American history. He's one of the most dynamic people in American history. And so it, it was stamped out in that way. So Adam Daniel Williams, he's in Georgia. As I mentioned, his father dies in, in 1874, who, who was a preacher while he was enslaved. He, he's in Georgia and he begins, he wants, he has a calling. He wants to be a preacher. You know, it, you're talking about Georgia in the 1870s. This is during Reconstruction. He's not allowed to get very much education. He doesn't have education offered to him. Some of the people, his his older sister, because he has siblings. You know, a lot of times we talk about, you know, black people in history, and we don't talk about their families, right? He was a man made by his family, his mother and his father, as well as his, his siblings. And his older sisters apparently helped him learn how to read to some extent. The new family whose house they moved to, whose home they moved to which was probably sharecropping but they, whose home they moved to um they were all the, the the daughters they were also helpful with him in terms of him being able to read and give him exposure and that type of thing so he realized you know hey I want to be somebody who does who does more with my life and he ends up in in uh becoming a preacher he ends up getting licensed to preach and so in 1888 he became a licensed preacher you know it took him a while right so he's he's trying to to work and apparently he was preaching because you probably weren't making a whole lot of money preaching in the 1880s right he wasn't making a lot of living but he was also working with his hands and I think at a sawmill factory and things of that nature at a sawmill and he had an accident where it it took off part of his right thumb and so he ended up being somewhat handicapped and he couldn't go back to doing the work with his hands he had to make preaching his full-time he wanted to do that anyway but he had to make me preaching his full-time calling you just never know how God is working in your life right so he ended up having to make preaching his full-time calling and he couldn't do other work to support himself. So he becomes a licensed preacher in 1888. And he ends up, you know, preaching and doing itinerary preaching around places in Georgia. And he apparently is making an impact. He is a dynamic preacher. He is people who are beginning to know him in that local area of Georgia. So he's called to Atlanta in 1893. And this is where the history starts to even continue to unfold when you start to see the history unfold. He's called to Atlanta to help become the pastor of a Springfield Baptist church there. He gets to Atlanta in 1893, I believe it's in September of 1893, and it's a small church. He's the pastor there, and then the following March in 1894, he becomes the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. He's called to, they want him to come to take on take charge of Ebenezer Baptist Church. Now, this is Ebenezer Baptist Church, the famous church that is the home church of Martin Luther King, his family's home church. This is Ebenezer Baptist Church. 
when Reverend, when his grandfather, when Adam Daniel Williams take takes over Ebenezer, it is is 1894, and I think they have seven members. Um, they don't have a they don't have a, actually have a building for their church, and 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 they're pretty they're pretty pretty small church, and um, like I said, maybe seven million members, maybe four, and and they don't have a building, and so he becomes to to start to really put his full-time efforts into Ebenezer. He's still at some point in time doing itinerary preaching in various places around, around Georgia and around the area. Cause he's still being called to preach in various places, but you know, he just can't do that and do what he's doing in Atlanta. He begins to put his whole effort into Atlanta. And so, you know, over a period of time, he starts to grow Ebenezer Baptist church from a period of time when he first took over it from having about seven members, he grows it to over 400 members some years later, and then over 700 members years later. And so you begin to say, you know, this becomes to be a, a extensive growth in the 1890s and early 1900s of Ebenezer Baptist church. He's also the person who has the leadership of developing the building where Ebenezer church on Auburn Avenue, Jackson and Auburn Avenue is under his leadership and under his authority and he's the leader of Ebony's Baptist Church that they end up purchasing that building. And I think it's a building that they end up renovating and improving, if you will. And I think it cost some $25,000, which was obviously a lot of money in the early 1900s. But they do the improvements there. That's him growing Ebenezer from seven members, you know, seven to 10 members to over 700 members from having no building at all to worship in to having what that building that's on Auburn Avenue and Jackson Street. That's an amazing amount of growth. And he's laying the groundwork. And this, you know, initially when I was younger, I never knew. I just knew that Martin Luther King was associated with Ebenezer Baptist Church. I knew that his father was a pastor there. And I knew that his grandfather in some way was connected, but I had no idea that his grandfather helped to really build that church up to what it is really today to lay the groundwork for it. And even though Martin Luther King wasn't officially the pastor because he went on, he, this was his church. This was his family's church that he grew up in and where he learned to preach and where he learned his, his instructions about the Bible, the church and, and in the home that his grandfather built and bought. So, so he's there, Reverend Adam Daniels William, he's there in Atlanta and he's building up, you know, Ebenezer Baptist church. And he's, he's making a name for himself. He is, he is having an impact. And, and another thing he does early on when he gets there is that he decides to go to school because he's in Atlanta now and and the whole idea of being edgy, he's always wanted to do more. And one of the things that you that they talk about in this article and this story was written about him, they talk about him not being afraid to do new things. They said one of the reasons why he was such a great man, and see this article is written before Martin Luther King is even born, so they don't even know about Martin Luther King. They're, they're talking about Reverend Adam Daniel Williams. They're saying one of the reasons he's a great man is because he's not afraid to do anything new, that he has such a vivid imagination. Sometimes he has to curb and pull down his imagination because he gets so excited and he has such a vision. He was a man of vision. And so you think about that, right? So he's a man of vision. He, he decides once he gets to Atlanta that he needs to do more. So he decides to go to the Atlanta Baptist College to get his, to get a um, certificate in theology. Now this is the institution that will become Morehouse College. So he goes basically to Morehouse before it's called Morehouse College. Obviously, you know, this is the same place Martin Luther King would go to when he's 15, 16 years old, when he starts college early, it's Morehouse College. He's following in the footsteps of his father, but not only his father, but his grandfather who went to Morehouse before he was even called Morehouse. It was, a, it was Atlanta Baptist College. So he went to, to what would become Morehouse. 
and he got his theological um, um, degree, a certificate there. So he always wanted to push himself, apparently, to move forward in life and to, and to better himself and to do more with respect to education and to push the envelope, if you will. Now, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of times people will talk about, I've heard people say various things. Obviously, there are a lot of people who love Martin Luther King. There are a lot of people who respect Martin Luther King and the fact that he died, obviously, for, for a cause to help other people. In it, But there are also some people who... Um, or kind of equate like nonviolence with with um, with passiveness, with weakness. Or and I've even heard people say negative things. Even when Martin Luther King was alive, they said negative things about him. And what it makes me think, as I read about his grandfather, is you never know what somebody's been through. You never know what somebody's family's been through. You never know the the road that they trod. Many of the people that you saw in the civil rights movements not only went through the horrible, crazy things that they had to go through in the civil rights movements, which was caught on, were caught on camera, they went through and their families went through things that were never caught on camera. Things that were, were horrible and disrespectful and, and despicable that were never caught on camera and people were never never brought to justice for. So you, you, you really don't know the road that somebody has walked when you see them in the limelight. You think in one way, they have a lot of times a lot of things that went into what they what they what they did and what they became. And one of the examples of that is here's Reverend Adam Daniel Williams in, in 1906. That was the famous riot that took place in Atlanta. And if you if you're familiar with this, if you know about this, this is one of the most horrific uh, riots in American history. Um, there's so many. There's so many race wars. There's so many massacres that took place in American history from from New Orleans to Memphis to the to. Tulsa, Oklahoma, to Rosewood, to Lane, Arkansas. I mean, I could go on and on of many, many races. East St. Louis, Illinois. There's so many horrible race riots and massacres that took place where Caucasian people were slaying black people, and this was one of them in Atlanta. And when this happened, Martin Luther King's family was established in Atlanta. Ebenezer Baptist Church was established. His grandfather was in charge of uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church, and his mother was a child. So this riot would have affected his family in some way. You would have been hard for you to be black in Atlanta and have this race war riot take place, this race war take place, and, and you not be affected by it in some way. So what happened, and this right here is coming from the Astoria, um, and this is a, 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 a the historian. This is um, something that that was taken the morning historian from Sunday, September twenty third, so nineteen o six. So this is in September of nineteen o six, and it talks about right here. You can see as I kind of bring it up, so you can talk about. You can see this was a race war in Atlanta, and it talks about what had happened was apparently the newspapers in Atlanta during this time had reported apparently erroneously and falsely that four Caucasian women had been attacked by black men, by Negro men, in the same day. Um, and it, it was on the heels of other reports of within a, a two-week period of time, some other Caucasian women reportedly being attacked by, by, by Negro men. And then a month earlier, a Negro woman, a, a white woman being attacked by a Negro man. Those were reports being in the newspaper. And this particular race war that took place, um, it reported erroneously, falsely, that that four women were attacked on one day in the outskirts of Atlanta. And so as you might imagine, a group, a mob of Caucasian people got together and they attacked the black section of Atlanta, apparently on Decatur Street. And and horrible things happened on this day. Horrible things happened. Like I said, it's one of the worst race wars in American history. And it's 1906. And it talks about, you know, this this article is saying that the cause of it was, you know, assaults on white women, that that was the cause of it. And as I mentioned, this was erroneously um, mentioned in the newspaper. This was taking place. Apparently that was not the case. Um, and the, you ended up having the militia called out. But one of the things that happened with this is that they begin to take men and women. It wasn't it wasn't just 
it wasn't just men. They took men and women and they took them and it talks about it right here. Men and women being taken off of streetcars and attacked. So what happened was on that day, as, as the story gets on because it begins to talk more about it, it talks about on that day as black people were coming home from work, they were being attacked on the streetcars and on the streets, as you can see right here mentioned, that they were taking women coming home from on the streetcars just from work, black men stopping the streetcars, pulling them off of the streetcars and beating them with clubs and bricks and, and, and various things over the head. So they just beat them to death. And you had, you had people in the hospital, you had people being died, you had people who were lingering for a period of time. And this article right here talks about bodies laying on the street. So you have people who were literally pulled off of the public transportation that they were taking, their transportation, their way home, pulled off of public streetcars, taken out, beaten over the head with bricks and clubs, women and children. So help me understand if you think there, were, well, there was an African-American man who attacked an African, a, a white woman or several African-American men, how are you just pulling people off of streetcars and beating them? And how would a woman be somebody who's, who's attacking? Why would she be involved in, right? So this is just obviously lies and hate and the reasons why people are doing this. And so the governor had to call out the militia. Even the militia, they walked through the streets in Atlanta, were marked apparently, according to this, this um, article, the militia at times were jeered and, and the people were yelling at the militia for trying to bring back order, if you will. And at this period of time, you know, black, many black people lost their lives. Dozens lost their lives or were injured. And this was just something that broke out in Atlanta. And apparently after a day or so, and the militia was called out and it came to be a torrential rain that stopped some of the people who, from who were marauding around the streets. But it was something that was, when you read the newspaper articles about it, because this is, like I said, this is years before Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is years before East St. Louis, Illinois. You know, you're, you're talking at a time where you read the newspapers and the articles are, are, are interesting in the way they're written. You know, one of the articles I was write, reading said, nothing like this has ever happened in American history. Nothing like this has ever happened since the, the, the European has come to America. This is what the article was saying. No, no kind of race war like this. This is a disgrace on American history. So, you know, even though this had happened in Memphis and this had happened in Wilmington and this had happened in, in New Orleans in 1900, they were, they were saying that the, the character of the evilness and the war that took place in Atlanta was so violent and so brutal that it was unusual, that it, that it stood out amongst race wars that had taken place in America. And this was at a time when Martin Luther King's family was there. Martin Luther King, Reverend Adam Daniel Williams, he was there. He was in Atlanta. And he would have, by this period of time, been seen as a leader in Atlanta. He would have been seen as someone who, who would, would have been, you know, speaking up, someone who would stand out. And the question becomes, did he, did he cower back? Did he not do something or did he stand up? He absolutely stood up. He was somebody who then you begin to read the article about his life. And even though the article doesn't connect it, when you start to look at the events of the time, you can see the timing around it. The article begins to talk about how he begins to stand up and do things with respect to the the Georgia Equal Rights um, Foundation. He becomes one of the founding members of the NAACP, the Atlanta chapter of the NAACP in 1917. And even in 1906, he begins to, to speak out more in the early part, of, uh, even before that and right after that, for voting rights and for issues with respect to, to equal rights. He doesn't, he doesn't shut his mouth up. He doesn't cower, but he begins someone who speaks out as a leader and as a preacher in Atlanta, he's not someone who's apparently just 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 moving aside, and he is really laying the groundwork for what his grandson will become. He is laying the the example for his his son-in-law and what his son-in-law would inherit when he inherits Ebenezer Baptist Church because he doesn't die until 1931. 
and when he passes away. So it becomes a significant thing. But another thing I want to mention in terms of how this develops for him that's important. So when you think about this race war that took place in Atlanta in 1906, not only did that take place, but after that, you can also see in this article from the Fitzgerald Enterprise, you see a proclamation. And I'll put this right here so you can see that you got to read this. I mean, this is something you just got to read. Maybe I'll put it in the and the group that, that I have for Black History for Everyone and my subscribers so you could read this for yourself. So this is from the, the um, from August of 1908 after the Atlanta riots in 1906. And here is what came out of those, those riots. A, a, a big push by Caucasian people where they did not want black people to vote. This whole idea of black people voting, this whole idea of, of black people taking on a search in, in the state and, and developing their will and, and being proud and doing something, that was not what people wanted. So that so the constitution of Georgia was changed. And here is a proclamation that was put in the newspaper in 1908 by the governor of, of um of Georgia and this proclamation is with respect to registration of voters and the qualification of electors. Who's going to be an elector and who's going to allow, be allowed to register to vote? This is a, an, an incredible, like crazy thing that you, you, you just have to see and read for yourself. So it talks about, you know, all persons who have honorably, so they're, they're giving the qualifications to people who are able to vote, right? All persons who have honorably served in the Naval forces or United States army during a revolutionary war. So you're going to be automatically able to vote. So they're talking about male of, of a certain age, you have to be male of a certain age they couldn't say white male because of the changes to the america to the constitution right so here is an example of where the the either the grandfather clauses or poll taxes or various restrictive things are put into the constitution are put back into place in in the south um for black people who were making roads during uh, during reconstruction had those things stashed away right after reconstruction right after whole plessy versus ferguson in 1896 and more things being put back into the laws of states which is why you had voting rights bills and civil rights bills that Martin Luther King had to fight right he had to fight this and this is what's happening in Georgia before he's born while his grandfather is a significant figure in Atlanta this is what's happening in Georgia so it says anybody who is a um who, who has fought in these wars, right? And I'm going to go up to the top so you can see it. In any of the American, the war of the 1812 or any war with Native Americans, it's Indian or Spanish, or it says, look at this, or who honorably served in the land or the naval forces of the Confederate states or the state of Georgia in the war between the states. It literally says if you were a Confederate soldier, this was a, a, an army that was in open rebellion, treason against the United States of America. If you served honorably, honorably in the Confederate States of America in their army or naval forces, you could be allowed to vote. You were automatically, you were automatically put in the, in the group of people who could vote in Georgia. This was, I'm not making this up, guys. This, this is the Georgia, this is in 1908. You can look at it right here. I'm not making this up. And then it says, not only that, any person who was lawfully descended who was a descendant of somebody who had served in the Confederate States of America or in the American Revolution is also allowed to vote. Think about that. They're basically saying people who were descendants of Confederate soldiers or Confederate soldiers themselves, along with people in other parts of the war, you're automatically allowed to vote. And so here's how they put all these other these other trappings in there where they wouldn't say black outward outwardly, but they're they're making it be black, right? So this could have been considered like one of the grandfather clauses. If your grandfather was allowed to vote, then you were allowed to vote. If you could say your grandfather was in the Confederate arming then okay you can you can also vote so then it also says and then you know all persons and i'll put this right here now remember remember 
all of the impacts that are put on black people in terms of their ability to go to, ed to education. And one of the reasons why they don't want to let you be educated, one of the reasons why he fought for his own education and made sure he got an education at Atlanta Baptist College, which would become Morehouse, all the limitations. But this is a man who loved education, who always wanted to do more for himself, you know, do more better himself and things like that. Even when he was a child, he had to fight to learn to read. He had to have people help him because he didn't have education offered to him, right? He had to do many things in order to just be able to have an education, something he always wanted. And it took him years to do it, right? It said that when, by the time he became 30, this article that he'd only had three or four weeks of formal education his entire life. But he, all the other stuff he was learning, he was going on his own alone because he didn't have education afforded to him. And so you take the context of that with a lot of black people whose family you may have. I've had family who were from Georgia, who had been in Georgia around this time or was before this time. This would have impacted them, too. It's not just something that's somebody else's family. It could be your family. It could be my family who's impacted by this. Here, he's somebody who loved education and wanted to have education, even though it wasn't offered to him. And so this amendment to the constitution that they're offering in 1908 not only does it says you know if your family was a part of the confederate army you can you can be you can vote it also says all persons who can correctly read in the english language any portion any paragraph of the constitution of the united states or of the state of georgia basically correctly with the same and write the same and correctly write the same in English language when read to them by one of the registrars and all, think about this. So you could be a black person. You could be going to register to vote in Georgia, anywhere in the state of Georgia. And if you have family from Georgia, this would have happened to them. This could have happened to them. They went to go regi register. You go to register and the registrar, who's most likely a Caucasian person, could read you any portion they wanted to of the United States Constitution or the Constitution of Georgia, any portion they wanted to. And if you could not read it yourself or write it exactly correctly, not spelling anything wrong, now they may not even be able, being able to spell themselves, but they have the paper in front of them. If you couldn't write it correctly, you couldn't register to vote. Is that crazy? And who was that, who was that directed against? That was directed against black people. That's what that was. And it came after the, the race war in Atlanta in, in 1906. This was a 1908 adoption of the, the constitution for Georgia that happened after the Atlanta riot, which was part of the outcome of it. So it's basically, so it's basically saying right there, if you cannot have it read to you and correctly write the same in English when read to them by any of the registrars, and then it talks about if you have a disability, they will do something. If you have a disability, you have to be able to interpret. So essentially, you have registrars standing in front of you, just like that, you know, you movie, that scene with like Oprah Winfrey. Did you have a registrar standing in front of you? Any old person just deciding whether or not you, you meet this criteria. They could put any part of it. They could say any part of the Constitution. They could put any type of Latin word. You may not even have access to education. You may be in a situation where you're not allowed to go to school or you can't go to school but so much or there are limitations put on your, your abilities to do things. You know, like, for example, Martin Luther King's mother, Alberta Christine, um, you know, when she was wanted to be a school teacher, she was trained and she was educated. She went to be a school teacher. At that period of time, the school board would not allow a married woman to, to be in the, in the classroom. Like if you were married, you couldn't be a school. Isn't that crazy? All kinds of limitations were put on women, were put on black people so that you wouldn't have it. And here you could have this person where you're going to register to vote, tell you to write down whatever section, and it doesn't give you limitations of the constitution they pick out. And if you don't write it exactly correctly, you could be denied the ability to vote, denied the option to vote. This was, this is what was happening in Georgia. And this was the type of thing that Adam Daniel Williams was fighting against. And so people were organizing, you know, and, and these are the, the laws that, that Martin Luther King was born under. 
the Constitution that he was born under, that he was affected by, that they were fighting against. And you had situations where, here's how the trick goes. They limit your access and your ability to education. They limit your access to opportunity, right? You know, you, you can't go to school or you don't have access to various things, whether you're a woman or black. And, and then they say, oh, look at you, you don't have it. Why don't you pull yourself up by your, or everybody else does it. I mean, that's just a lie, and they still do the same thing today. You get limited what you have. You have less access to resource, less access to opportunity, less, less access to a lot of things, and then they say, oh, look at what you don't have, and look at how you behave, and look at how you, you, you don't know or you can't vote or you're not this because, hey, you, don't, you just don't do it. you got to have access. You have to have, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's the, that's the trick here. Limit his opportunity and then not allow him to vote and then say, look at what you don't have. Right. Because you aren't you don't have vote. You don't have an education. These are things that keep away from these are things they're keeping away from him. So as I, I talk through and, and, and look at some of the notes of more of the things that he did, he becomes a significant person in Atlanta. He becomes a significant person who's moving forward. So in 1895, there's a National Baptist Convention. He attends that. It's a very famous conven convention where Elias Camp Morris, who was a very strong organizer for the National Baptist Convention, um, became elected like the president of it. But Adam Daniel Williams was there and he was apparently one of the forceful people in that in that meeting because there were a lot of powerful preachers in Atlanta in the 1890s, and early 1900s. And he was one of them. Right. So he then begins to not only does he do that in, in, in October of 1899, he marries a woman named Jenny Celeste. Her name was Jenny Celeste Parks. I think it's interesting that her last name was Parks. She would become uh, Martin Luther King's grandmother. So he marries Jenny Celeste and they have three children. They have three daughters. Only one of their daughters survives to adulthood. Their other two die in, in childhood. So the only daughter they have that survives to adulthood is Alberta Christine, and Alberta Christine Williams becomes Martin Luther King's mother. So it's it just it's very interesting. So he marries Jenny Celeste. They have three daughters, and their only daughter that survives is Alberta uh, Christine. Now, Alberta Christine, as I mentioned, she becomes Martin Luther King's mother, and she will eventually marry a man named Michael King, which we'll talk about in a minute. She marries Michael King, and they end up having several children, Martin Luther King being one of them. So not only does he do that, he gets married in 1899, He's a, he's a part of the National Baptist Convention in 1895, but then he also becomes president of the Atlanta Baptist Ministers Union. So he becomes, in 1904, just two years before that riot, he is president of the Atlanta Baptist Ministers Union. So he's, he's, he's speaking out. He's being known amongst Baptist members in Atlanta just right there in 1904, just before this riot takes out. He's seen as a leader amongst Baptist ministers. And then, as I mentioned, the riots break out in 1906. He begins to then organize and do things with the Georgia Equal Rights um, uh, Association. And then in 1917, as the NAACP is continuing to grow, he helps to found the first, the Atlanta chapter of the NAACP. And he also convinces the entire national organization during a speech that he apparently gave up at one of the meetings that he gave in front of people. He was apparently a powerful speaker. He convinced the national organization to come to Atlanta to have their first meeting, their first national meeting meeting in the South, which took place in 1920 in Atlanta. That was the first time they had a national meeting in the South. Interesting enough, though, he would have also been in Atlanta at the time when Booker T. Washington gave his, well, at the time when Booker T. Washington gave his famous Atlanta speech, as basically his Atlanta compromise speech. He would have been in Atlanta at that time as well, seeing these things with all these dynamic things happening in the backdrop. And he apparently, you know, at the time, very early on in the early 1900s, Booker T. Washington was respected by a lot of people, right? And he believed in the idea of working with your hands. He also had some of the social activism that W.B. Du Bois was speaking about. He was also believing that. He believed that black people should be property owners. He believed that if we were educated and property owners, that a lot of the things we were fighting for would, would help on and of itself. 
himself. So he was, he was thinking about some things. So, so not only did he help the NAACP to have their first national meeting in, in Atlanta, in the South, in 1920, but then he also, as he developed and helped to to grow the the Atlanta chapter of the NAACP, as I mentioned, he helped to found, helped to start that chapter in 1917. He then became its president in 1918, and he grew the membership of the NAACP Atlanta chapter to like over 1,400 people in five months. <laughs> so this guy was an organizer, and one of the main things they did was register people to vote, register black people to vote. Think about what his grandson would do, what Martin Luther King would do with respect to voting and how important voting and voting rights were for him so he is setting the groundwork he is setting the groundwork for that family and how that family would develop and the crucible in within which martin luther king would, would grow up so so not only does he do that and as i mentioned he marries jenny celeste and they have uh, alberta christine um he ends up not only helping to to build and renovate the building that will become the famous ebenezer baptist church there on auburn avenue in atlanta he and his wife buys they buy the 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 birth home of martin luther king that 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 home that you see now that's a national historic monument um, that somebody tried to burn up not too long ago but the, the national historic monument it is um he, it, it, he purchased that home at 501 Auburn Avenue. It was he and his wife that first purchased that home. They purchased a home and his daughter was, was, was born. His daughter was there and, and he had his daughter there, but, but not his daughter was there. And he also, what ended up happening is Martin Luther King's father, Michael King, he came, he wasn't born in, um, in, uh, in, in Atlanta. He was from outside of Atlanta. He ended up coming to Atlanta because his sister was in Atlanta and he needed to come kind of to make a better way. A lot of people were coming to the city, you know, to make a better life for themselves, just like Adam Daniel Williams, they were coming to the city. And when Michael King, Martin Luther King's father came to Atlanta, his sister, M Michael King's sister, ended up boarding, being a boarder at the house of Reverend Adam Daniel Williams. He, he was, she was a boarder there. And so she was running out of room. So that's how Michael King, Martin Luther King's father, met Alberta Williams, his daughter, was because Michael King's sister was a, was a boarder in Adam Daniel Williams' house, that house right there on Auburn Avenue. So he met her there, and it was there that, you know, he met, he met, he met the daughter, and he met Reverend Adam Daniel Williams, and Michael King, he basically, he took it upon him, he introduced himself to, to Mr. Williams there. He, he wanted himself to be a preacher. Michael King looked up to, to preaching. He wanted to be a preacher, and he was an opportunity to meet the man who owned the house where his sister was staying and to, to be, to become in the fellowship of, of preachers and to become in, they took him into the family. They took him into the, his home. They, they, they nurtured him and he ended up marrying Alberta Williams and they ended up having several children. One of which, one of whom obviously was, was Martin Luther King. And that's why Michael King ended up inheriting, if you will, the pastoralship of Ebenezer Baptist Church when Reverend Adam Daniel Williams died. Now, Adam Daniel Williams died in 1931, so he would have been alive to see and to meet his several of his grandchildren. And he would have been alive to see and meet Martin Luther King when Martin Luther King was just a child of just a couple years old before he died. And so he may not have known, he may never have known that his grandson would grow up to be one of the most famous preachers of all time, but he was certainly laying the groundwork for that to happen. So I want to remember and honor Reverend Adam Daniel Williams today. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it so much. God bless you.